Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. I'm Sarit Thakka. And I'm Itamar Srulovic. Our guest today is an incredible chef and a kindred spirit of ours from Seattle. She's a James Beard award-winning chef and author. She bought her first restaurant at 25. Today, she owns six restaurants and bars in Seattle, and that's before we even count the donut and coffee spots. We're in awe of her energy and creativity. Her new book is called Getaway. A big welcome to Renee Erickson. Yay! Welcome, Renee. Hello. We are so delighted to have you here ever since we met a couple of years ago in Seattle, which very quickly became one of our favorite places in the world. You have so many restaurants, all of them amazing. And different from each other, which is like <laughs> so great. I'm crazy. You're always cool and composed. <laughs> Everyone is, you know, whenever you go to one of your restaurant, people are so nice and kind to you. We have like two and a half restaurants and we crumble every day. <laughs> in tears. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say, Renee, that I think I remember you from a visit as a customer to Honey & Co. Oh. Actually, is the first time. I think you were there eating and yes. I immediately spotted a fellow food enthusiast, <laughs> which is nice. And I wanted to ask you about your journey into food and how, how at 25 do you end up with your first restaurant? So I was foolish, as you are when you're young, which is wonderful. And Ignorance is, is it, bliss, Yeah, it? like if you look back in time at the food world, it was a very different place. So I bought a restaurant, basically, or took one over. Um, and, you know, like you could do things without anyone yelping about it. Nobody cared. You know, you just worked. And so I really had no clue what I was doing. And it was a restaurant that was really tiny and had a lot of quirks and an opportunity for someone who really had no experience whatsoever to do things. So over those four years, I ended up learning everything and falling in love. And, um, and then the opportunity to buy it from Susan who opened it kept coming up. And so did she force you to it? You can say, <laughs> no, did she, she force didn't. a restaurant on you? I mean, she did tell me that it would like, you know, probably become like a 
copy center or something like that. So she, and I, you know, I truly did love it. I thought, you know, it became kind of, I mean, I spent a lot of time there as you do when you're in restaurants. And I asked everyone that knew me really well if I should continue down the restaurant path or wait to get into graduate school and see whether I was going to go off and become an artist. And everyone said, by the restaurant. So they were like, mm, maybe skip the artist path. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think that's kind of like if you'd have given them any other career option, they would say, get away from that <laughs> yeah, right. restaurant. Like totally. Any, yeah, uh, right. Yeah. It was a toss like, up, you know, <laughs> which which one's like not as bad as the other. Yeah. So they're both pretty rubbish, aren't they? I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just fun. You know, despite all the crap that comes with it, it's still really a lovely, lovely thing to do. So it is uh, the essence of it having a party every night. Yeah, right? Yeah. But at 25, did you find it intimidating? Was it difficult? Were people listening when you asked them to do things? How how did the whole experience? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I hired a few friends and most people were my age. So I it didn't feel like I was an authority, really. It just felt like we were all trying to, like, get the doors open and get people food. And I was scared, for sure. I mean, I did a lot of crying when I was alone just because it was so overwhelming. I still do that. You know, it, it happens. In the walk-in? Um, in the walk-in, at the by the dumpster, you know, wherever you can hide. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think once I realized kind of the responsibility to it, especially, like, the responsibility to your employees, I think that was the stress for me. It was like, you know, if it wasn't busy, what was I doing to, to make it busier or... You know, if somebody wasn't nice to the employees, how did you handle that? And, you know, that that part stressed me out because I was a kid, you know, I was 25 and yeah. I didn't have a lot of work experience in restaurants. I'd worked in like coffee shops and I had worked at Boat Street, obviously. But in hindsight, I was like kind of wide eyed and just like, OK, you know, I have a million things I have to do every day. I'm just going to get up and do it. So. That's the thing. You, you're too busy to think yeah. about how scary it actually is. Absolutely. And then you, you went back for more. <laughs> kind of like Stockholm Syndrome, having a restaurant. Yeah, yeah right. you're sort of a fool for punishment. Uh, totally. I had Boat Street for about five years and then I lost the lease. So I, it was a very bad situation. And so I ended up not having a restaurant. I bought a house. Then I was unemployed like three months later. So it was kind of like the worst series of events. And so I spent two and a half years catering and kind of doing whatever I could to kind of keep it together while I looked for a new location and then finally reopened. And I had Boat Street um, in total, in, if you include the two and a half years um, for almost just under 18 years. So it took to year 12 before I had another restaurant. So I was I was a slow burn to get yeah. to another spot. And that was entirely based on fear because I, you know, I don't know that I was like mature enough as a business owner to know that or at least to have the right relationships to be able to, you know, have multiple locations to have someone that you trusted in in the spot all the time. And so that took a long time and, and a lot of pushing from now my, my business partner, Chad Dale, and our other partner, Jeremy, who was the person that we kind of partnered with to be the, the owner that was at Walrus when we opened Walrus. So I was afraid, you know, it's hard when you want to control everything and can't imagine you know, I barely took time off to go to weddings, let alone open another restaurant. So. so so how did you go about it? How did you kind of make the decision, I suppose, to make each place different rather than mm. kind of having a formula and teaching that sure. formula? 
that's even harder, isn't it? To In hindsight, yes, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> it has a lot to do with being creative. The part of learning new things and, you know, we designed the spaces, so making them all seem unique and special and different felt really important to us. It's also really exciting to think about the colors you're going to use and the textures and all of that. And then the same thing with the menu, like it felt more important for us to make new things than make the same thing. I mean, there's obviously some very clear threads that run through our restaurants that are specific to sea creatures and me and and how we think about food. No. And I think Seattle's also small. And, you know, I think we would have to leave the state to, like, copy something. Otherwise, we just people would just go to Walrus um, or yeah. they would just go to Bateau or whatever. So, so um, they, they need a reason to go somewhere. They either yeah. Need. I mean, I, I would cross... Oceans to eat in any one of your restaurants any given night. Yay. I'm not even kidding. There's something so true and honest and fine mm. about all the food that we had in your restaurant. I, I still think this parmesan salad that we had in whale winds mm. is one of the best things that i had in my life it's a good one yeah we do talk yeah. about it often we talk about it a lot <laughs> <laughs> tell us a bit about the the name and sea creatures and then kind of the yeah, slight so nautical sea, sea creatures is your the name of your company and each one of the restaurant has mm. a nautical name almost all yeah so Boat Street was on Boat Street. So in Seattle, obviously, is there's water everywhere and boats everywhere. So that's how it got its name. Fast forward to Walrus. We have this thing where we pretend to answer the phone and say the name of the restaurant so that we could like <laughs> see like, how does it sound? Can anyone understand you? Will they be able to spell it? You know, all the things. And we had a French name for Walrus and the Carpenter that we just kept coming up against being like, this is stupid. What was it? It's Wittery. Um <laughs> Which, yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. You're just like, what did you say? <laughs> and I'm not fluent in French, so I was like, what am I trying to do? Like, I'm not even sure I know how to say it right. And there's a place in Paris called Huiterie Régie, which is in the six. That's a tiny oyster bar that was really influential to me because of its spareness. Like, its interior looks like it's all oyster colors, and they only serve oysters and shrimp and scallop terrine and only white wine and only champagne and no red wine and you can only get rye butter and you have to order a dozen oysters per person and like all the things people would boycott me if I did that here in Seattle so yeah. <laughs> the name kind of hung around for a while and then we were just like that is the dumbest name for an American to have to say so we did these theme dinners and one of them was the Normandy dinner and Jeffrey Mitchell who does all the illustrations for my cookbooks he was working with us at the time and for the event i was like let's write something on this chalkboard and we both loved the story from through the looking glass about the oysters and so he did this drawing of the walrus and the carpenter and all the little oysters walking down the beach and he put up a quote and so at some point when we were thinking about how bad a name we had for walrus we then were <laughs> like well what about walrus and the carpenter so you know you just sort of eventually get to a name that you that fits right it feels right yeah and then whale wind similarly we had a dumb name and <laughs> i ended up buying a painting that is at the whale now and it, it's this painting of a whale coming up out of the ocean and it's exploding a whaling ship so there's like people flying all over and on the bottom of the frame there was a little brass plaque and it, uh, the artist had hammered into it the whale wins so I was just like, what about this? And so the paintings behind the bar and 
people ask us every so often if we serve whale, which of course we don't. But um, no, because that would be the whale lost. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Sad. Um, we have a restaurant called Wilmot's Ghost that's in this big, beautiful glass terrarium basically it's like this giant home for plants from all over the world it was going to be italian so we wanted it to make some sort of sense to that and so i started doing some kind of snooping around in the world of gardeners and so doing that um i uncovered um Ellen Wilmot, who lived in London, who was famous for designing beautiful gardens, um, many of them on the Italian Riviera on the coast. And so she became fairly famous. Um, I think she was pretty clever. I joke that she, I, I think I loved her because she was noted for loving gardens, dogs, and wine. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, that's me. Um, <laughs> turns out Kindred that's me. Kindred spirit. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? But the name Wilmot's Ghost comes from her being a guest at other people's gardens and she would put the seed of this plant into, into her coat pocket and put holes in her pockets and she would shake them out as she would walk around. And then the following year, this plant would come up and it was then named Wilmot's Ghost. And so it's a beautiful um, thistle and it does that like it'll reseed itself kind of everywhere. And so um, it grows really well here in Seattle. So we have actually have them out in front of the restaurant and uh, our the gardener actually for the spheres, Ron, planted them for us as a surprise, which was very sweet. So then up came these beautiful plants that were what we named the restaurant after. So it's pretty that fun. That is such story. a cool story. I'm going to check what this plant looks like. You obviously have such a personal connection to each one of these places. Yeah. How do you manage to keep that? Sure. And actually, um, you can invoice us for the answer. <laughs> you know, we're asking at the professional level. right? Yeah, we're asking yeah. on a professional level it? completely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you get this. Like, your places are really part of you. I think what you put into your businesses are, are kind of a reflection of who you are. Whereas I would say most restaurants are not, you know, they're, they're places that are built to make money or they like make decisions that are financial versus emotional. And <laughs> sometimes, sometimes that might be the better solution in, in business. But for me to like have a place that I am proud of and, and want to work really hard at it has to be something that I'm like very excited about and things that I love to cook and food that I'm you know like how it would feel in your home I think is how I hope it to feel in in the restaurant so buy the best piece of fish I can for my guests um, the same way I would at home and it's actually hard to teach I think because harder the more you have because you're not in the spots all the time to have those conversations as to why you you know, I was laying in bed this morning thinking about our grilled cheese sandwich at Whale Winds, and I was like, it's just not brown enough. You know, I'm like, <laughs> how, how, why, you know, like, and then I'm like thinking like, as much as I keep pushing them to like cook it longer until it's like a thing that like is exactly how you want it to be. Like people, you have to teach them that versus like expecting them to know that. And yeah. it's hard. So like, there's all these like really subtle things that to me make a huge difference but to some people are just like it's just a grilled cheese sandwich it's good you know it's just like mm. Mm, not good enough and it's funny that you you don't really know what it is that you need to explain until you see it wrong, wrong. yeah yeah absolutely and it for me it's visceral and i'm you know like trying to teach that like yeah walking into a space and you know like immediately knowing all the things that you want to fix and it's kind of an illness i would say too it's unpleasant <laughs> <laughs> it's not it doesn't make for relaxing experiences all the time 
So I think it's those things, like just like having a real emotional connection to them all and then having support by staff that are having that same intention. People that are there for you. It's really, yeah. I had a kind of very yeah. similar experience in the kitchen today with a tomato salad where, like with your, <laughs> your toasted kind of sandwich, <laughs> I had the same thing with a tomato salad where I just needed to like show them what I mean by how you make mm-hmm. a tomato salad and not. Mm-hmm. So they can live a thousand years and not make a tomato salad like you. I can't make a tomato <laughs> but salad. But I can like try you. and teach them for these thousand yeah. years how to make it. <laughs> That's going to be a fun thousand years for everyone. Fun for them, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it will be fun. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you have a really kind of good ecosystem. And I was wondering, are you in the market for a small group of <laughs> Middle Eastern restaurants in London? You will get change from a tenor. <laughs> change from a tenor. Uh, I, sadly, no, but I appreciate the offer. <laughs> Someone else just asked me if I wanted to buy his restaurant. I was just like, no, like, I gotta, you know, <laughs> no. like, no, I'm like, definitely the pandemic has made me um, like everyone, like, kind of think about life and prioritizing and like growth is one of those things where it's just like, well, I don't know. I think it might be done, yeah. you know, 24 yeah. years but into is, it. It is one of those, one of those things that, you know, we always kid ourselves that we just were like that because, because of the restaurant. But actually the truth is that the restaurants are like that because this is who we are. You know, mm. we are workaholics. We are, Crazy. The people who think about, you know, <laughs> cheese sandwiches or tomato salads in the night. We thrive on it. We we feed on it, you know. Yeah. I don't know what I'll do without it. And, and, you know, moaning aside, it is the best thing anyone can do with their lives. I agree. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Renee, I want to bring up, as a matter of extreme urgency, I want to talk about your latest book. Extreme urgency. Extreme urgency. No, it is, it is extremely urgent because this is such a tonic. Oh. It is such a glorious book and it's just absolutely what we all needed after this year. 
And I just want to tell the listeners about your previous book about a whale and a walrus. Did I miss mm-hmm. an animal? No, no. that's a, those are all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Which was also, you know, such a seminal work for us, a book that we love so much. Mm-hmm. Has something very homey about it, has something mm. very cozy about it, very kind of inward looking. It's It's the food that you cook at home and on trips and with your friends. And this one, the new one, Getaway is completely different. It is. I want you to tell the listeners about Getaway because the book came to me like a lifeline. You oh. know, I spent so much time with it on the sofa. We wanted to cry mostly. Traveling. Tell everyone mm-hmm. about this book. <laughs> Thank you so much. It is a book about travel, the places that have been really important to me as a cook over the last 25 years. And Essentially, it was entirely written and photographed before the shutdown. I would say the one thing between the two books that I don't think it was intentional, but A Boat Oil and the Walrus is the people here in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest that have been really important to me. And then um, I feel like Getaway is the kind of next circle out. So the places and the people that I've gone to and have had great um, relationships from being in their home and their where they live and the, and the foods that they are excited to share with me. So it starts in Rome, uh, which was where I went to school when I was a student before I owned Boat Street. So that was mind blowing to me as a American traveling to Europe for the first time and seeing entirely different intention around food and walk around and look into stores and see an entire shop filled with lambs hanging and another shop entirely filled with cheese and another one with pasta. And that kind of exposure and excitement around food was very much um, an important part of me probably then being even open to having a restaurant and having that be a part of my life. So, um, and so from there... anticipated your your culinary fascinations. For sure. And so then as I became a cook and interested in food as a career... I would close the restaurants to be able to travel. And so Paris became a really um, big destination for me. And the restaurant that Boat Street was kind of a combination of um, like New England and France. So Susan's family was from Brittany. And so there was this, you know, draw to going to France through her and her love of food and what she had taught me. So, So Paris is the next chapter. And then it goes to Normandy, which was a combination of being in France and traveling around a lot. And also falling in love with oysters and then eventually opening Walrus and the Carpenter. So I would go back fairly often. And in in each of these places, I think the things that made it into the book was that I, over time, had a collection of friends that I had met and would travel back to to visit and and had become really important people in my life. So, Because there is something about friendships that you make abroad that they kind of like, maybe you didn't spend so much time with that person. But they sort of has more weight. Yeah, I think Do you so. Know what I mean, they become so important, don't they? Like these yeah. people yeah. you meet that kind of teach you something, or show you something, or give you an experience that you really that stays with you. Yeah, and I, you know, for me, the. I don't know if you feel this way. I, I kind of try to do this at home. What you see when you're traveling is so much more broad than at home. And so yeah. I oftentimes try to like think about like what would I look for or look at when I'm traveling to Seattle for the first time. Because I feel like you pay attention to the city and then the beauty and the crumbling walls and the light. It's so impacting as an artist and as a creative person and and someone who loves food. Like you're just like 
trying to absorb it all. So yeah, so Normandy and Normandy is in many ways very much like Seattle, so it felt very comfortable with the It is, isn't it? The coast, the weather, the seafood, yeah. the whole thing is yeah, a lot of Exactly. The apples. We don't have the good calvados yet, but maybe one day. Working on it. Are you working <laughs> yeah, on it? Yeah. Working on it. Yeah. They yeah, absolutely. This chapter in particular, you know, we very much cherish the summer here. Mm. But this really made me want to look forward to winter because mm. I'm going to cook a steak in the oh my God. Yeah, right? <laughs> this That's a good is what one. I'm going to do. Yeah. So yeah, so from Normandy, we go to London, of course, which of all the places, like the most surprising for me, I think as a literally like, okay, this might be my favorite place on earth to eat. Like mm. just so dynamic and so sophisticated and like such incredible ingredients and a real connection to the people that have their restaurants in a way that I think is really, especially in a giant city like London. Like I loved seeing London through your eyes. And I think yeah. we did, uh, the first thing we did after we got the book was book Rochelle Cantine. Yeah, we? we definitely gave us like the urge to go again and to, you know, to make the booking. It's what you said about trying to see your hometown in kind of the traveler you. Or totally. the visitor, you, which is lovely, which, which you also do because you also have a chapter on Seattle, but we'll get there. As a cook, I don't think there's been a place that I've been more like envious of people's ability to be restrained around food, too. I think I'm making this month up, but I think February is that when like the forest rhubarb shows up? It's everywhere and everyone's so excited and it's yours. And you know, that happens, I feel like, all year long in, in England, or at least in London when I'm there. And such a sense I, of pride, it feels like. I love that you say that because we always think about that amazing farmer's market in Seattle. And we're like, <laughs> why are we not getting this produce? But why I think you're always jealous of the place berries? you're not, you know, you're, you're jealous of the place you're not at. Yeah. And, you, and like, like we said before, you can see when you're visiting a place, you can see all the beauty in it and you tend to not mm -hmm. see the other things. When you live in a place, you sometimes see a bit more of the, the boring, repetitive kind of side. My job's made so much easier by being here in Seattle because the food is so incredible. When I was eating in London, like I knew that the dish was designed around a thing that was happening then in, you know, yeah. in the countryside in England. And that I think is something that is, takes a lot of confidence as a cook to be that restrained and proud of the thing versus like mucking it all up with all the other stuff that then like hides the essence of what you're trying to serve. Yeah. And so then next one is Baja, California, which is, um, you know, Seattle's on the West Coast of the United States. And we definitely kind of speak about the West Coast as a style of, of living and person. Yeah. And Baja obviously is on the West Coast as well. It has that same sensibility, but in an entirely different climate. So it's desert up to the ocean and there's aquifers and they can grow like the most incredible basil you can imagine and there's been you know italian immigrants and russian immigrants in this part of mexico before there was the united states you know like there's just this like depth of culture that is is very different than the rest of mexico so the vineyards in the valle de guadalupe have been there before anything was ever planted in napa so it's really cool and and beautiful and and magic so we met Dano and, and Carla, who are featured in the book. And because of them, you know, been exposed to their network of food people and, and the world that they get to live in and, and go back, you know, over and over again and learn more about it and feel really 
really connected to that, which I really love. And then you do become a tourist in your own town. I do. Rarely are people actually still from Seattle or at least from the Northwest. So I'm one of the lucky ones to have grown up here and still live here. Um, Seattle is very much focused on seafood. Seattle, if people don't know, it's wedged between two mountain ranges. Um, so there's the Cascades and then there's Seattle and then there's Puget Sound or what we now call Salish Sea and then the Olympic Mountain Range, which is on the coast. And on the other side of that is the Pacific Ocean. So it's pretty temperate. You know, we have mountain ranges so we can get, you know, like all the wild herbs and berries and mushrooms. And then we have very like rich soils to grow all sorts of things kind of around this area within like 30 minutes in all directions. And then, um, and then the water. So, and, yeah. and the, the Salish Sea is a protected inlet essentially. And so it actually protects the city with like humidity and, and rich. Yeah, exactly. It's this dynamic place to be able to cook. And the state itself is also divided essentially in half. So where the Cascade Range um, ends and kind of dips down to the eastern side of the state, it becomes a desert, essentially. So there's plains and desert. So we have a whole nother climate for growing like tomatoes and peppers and eggplant. So we're really lucky. We, we were so bowled over when we came yeah. to the mm. farmer's market because there was amazing. everything. You yeah. know? There was kind of these berries and apples that are kind of like cold weather and some, and beautiful tomatoes and yeah. aubergines. You know, amazing fish and meat. It was just, it was paradise for us. Yeah, for us as chefs, it was a very exciting place to, to come to. It's real great. And also seems to be like a city that's very passionate about its food and its... Uh... Culinarily, it's it's a really youthful place too. There's lots of young chefs opening right now, which is really exciting. Renee, the, the book is beautiful. And, and obviously none of us have managed to... Well, maybe you guys haven't. You seem to be traveling everywhere, but we haven't managed to get away <laughs> for at least a year. Tell us, just entice us with like a couple of your favorite recipes from some of the places you went to, just so that we have plans for when we can finally travel again, what we should be eating. So there's a dish in the Seattle chapter that are um, marinated mussels that I love. So they're steamed mm. and then kind of preserved in oil with uh, roasted cherry tomatoes and tarragon and a little salt and pepper. And then I just put them on Ritz crackers, which I don't know. Do you guys have Ritz crackers? Yeah, yeah. They're like buttery. Yeah. yeah, They're the best. And a little bit of aioli or mayonnaise. Um, so that's one I think I'm a huge fan of. The other thing that I never, I don't know why I never did this before, but I started a few years ago making, let's see, we can talk about tomato salads again, making a <laughs> tomato salad where half of the tomatoes are like grilled on a really hot grill and then the re- and then like kind of tossed together with fresh tomatoes and the olive oil mm, and delicious all of that. And this is in the book as well in, in Seattle chapter where it has, I think it's creme fraiche and gobs of herbs. Um, I think that's something that, Actually, your food, I think of a lot when I'm like rethinking my use of herbs. It's such a it's such an important part of your recipes in a way that um, I'm always like, yeah, just put the whole bunch in, you know, like, why not? Like, <laughs> put more, just, yeah. like what are you going to do just with it? It gives more flavor. Yeah, <laughs> It's going to wilt in your fridge anyways, so you might as well use it. And in the Baja chapter, there's charred onions, um, which, again, like I think, you know, I, I clearly love your food as well so that you basically take the whole onion and stick it in the coals and it blackens and steams and it kind of caramelizes inside i i kind of describe it as like onion pudding or something that happens and so you then let them cool and then you peel it off and then slice it and it's served over um 
crema that has jalapeno and a little bit of cilantro and serrano chili. And then it's t covered in a little olive oil and toasted sesame seeds and toasted chipotle chilies that are ground up into a powder kind of all over that. It sounds think, delicious. Also, like, I don't think you understand the level of how hungry Itamar and I are right now. <laughs> anyway, because... I mean, we're hungry for all of this book. We're hungry for all the uh, food. We're hungry for the travel. Yeah, we're hungry for spending time with you. We're, we just yeah. want all of that. I want to go to Jordan with you. You're, oh, you're my God. Jordan is... I'll tell you what, we will take you around southern Turkey. You mm. take us around Baja. There we go. We'll swapsies. <laughs> food swapsies. <laughs> Thank you so much, Renee. We could have continued absorbing more of your wisdom and your grace and your beauty mm. all day. But uh, we shall say goodbye now. See you soon. Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye. That is it for this episode of Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. Do join us for the rest of the autumn series. We'll be talking to chefs and writers from all over the world and from across food traditions to New York's Jake Cohen, Copenhagen's Trina Hanneman, and from London, Sami Tamimi and Tara Wheatley. Chitna Makan will bring us a taste of Mumbai via Kent, Caroline Eden journeys to Central Asia, and we'll end on something sweet, as always, with pastry chef extraordinaire Ravnit Gill. Thank you to our producer, Miranda Hinckley, to our engineers, Paul Brogdon and John Scott, to Daniel Winshaw for writing the music, and thanks to Louisa Cornford, our Lulu, uh, for all the help she puts into the podcast, and to all our team at Honey & Co. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you for listening. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.